Hey, hey, Cassandra, we're uh, we're about to record. You should sit down. Norman. Get... Y- yes. What do your elf eyes see? Uh, um, our our mics. No, no, you're supposed to say they're taking the podcast to Isengard. We, we've 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 been there all, several times yeah, but already. No, like for reals this time. <laughs> what do you, what do you what do you mean for reals this time? Well, you know the trees and the orcs and the 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 wizard and we're we're taking the podcast. To Isengard. Will there be stupid fat hobbits? Yes. Okay, I'm in. Oh, okay. That was easy. <laughs> I was. I had this whole sales pitch that you know there's potatoes, and you, you know, gotta boil them, <laughs> mash them, <laughs> stick them in a stew. There, there were also gonna be you know some crunchable horses. Um, we're back. <laughs> With season two, our yes. continuing coverage of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. This time we're talking about Two Towers. Join us on Dueling Genre every Monday through Friday to talk about Lord of the Rings one minute at a time. We're from Lord of the Rings Minute. Leave now and And never come back. No, please come back. (laughs) Dueling Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing the characters from the graphic novel series Rust, and joining the discussion is Protagonist Podcast co-pilot Andrew Dorowski. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. So glad you're here, and so glad that you suggested this one. We were fishing around a little to uh, record a comic book uh one and we've done a few uh yeah well we try and keep the comic book series eclectic but our last one at least in our current schedule where we're going to be talking this was a superhero so i'm like ah maybe we should do something that's not a superhero comic book you're like what about russ and i'm like i kind of remember you mentioning that a lot but i've never read it so i really appreciate it because it's a super good graphic novel series yeah as as much as we say like it's an eclectic collection it's also typically our collections yeah, <laughs> when we do comics, you know, we tend to pull from our own shelves, which I mean, part of that is just the accessibility. Yeah, um, like uh, um, so many and, TV and we shows have fairly and we have fairly extensive um, collections. Yeah, I, I, when we're doing a TV show, someone suggested it's like, ah, uh, I can stream it here or here or here. And I have access to those when it's movies. It's like, ah, I can go get that from the library or stream it from here, here or here with comics. It's a little harder to just say I can go grab this from. Like, you know, because I, I don't have a comicsology. I know it exists, but I don't have that app. And but uh, and, and even then, it that's not like streaming. I mean, Marvel has yeah. their um, unlimited comics option, but that's going to get you just Marvel just stuff, Marvel which is going heroes. to be 90 yeah. percent superheroes. Um, DC, I think, has something similar, but you don't have an option to do that for, you know, picking up stuff from the different publishers or, you know, to translate it to TV. It's like if everything was just studio based, which it seems like that's what things are moving towards, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know with, what I mean? Uh, 
Well, I mean, with books, we have obviously our own personal collections, but then libraries and then Overdrive for free rentals. We both have Audible accounts that we could use a credit on a book if we need to. Uh, but comics is a little trickier. So uh, hopefully listeners feel that we're, we're eclectic enough when it comes to our comic book selection. Um, but Rust, as I said, was one that I know you were a fan of and you've mentioned before uh, on occasion, but we just had never gotten to. And um, I also knew it was a four four graphic novels make up the series Rust, and these were not originally published as individual comics. This was like you were getting the however many hundred plus pages of content uh, in the yeah. graphic novel, and um, I guess almost two hundred or or two hundred and some of these uh, pages of story for each one. And so when you said we should do Rust, I'm like, oh, the first one, and you're like, I kind of think we need to do all four. I'm like, can we do all four in a discussion? Uh, and once I read them, I understood why you said we needed to do all four. So you made the right call just all around when it came to rust. Yeah, it's so it's published from Archaea. I I'm not sure how to pronounce that particular comic publisher. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's um, Archaea. And they do sort of your not typical format or size um, or genre uh, comic book publishing, sort of like the mouse guard um, model. Mm-hmm. I they think Mouse Guard might be through Archaea as well, right? Yes. Um, and so it's not the standard the comic book shape or size. Was. Yeah. And so you get a lot of different options and it's uh, it's creator driven, sort of like the Image Comics, but Image Comics is still pretty standard print size and, you know, comic we book issue stuff. release before it gets bundled together in a trade paperback. Yeah. And Archaea will do kind of the very different option um, for any listeners who aren't aware. And this is not one of like the most well-known uh, characters or, or, or stories. Uh, I think it should be more well-known than it is, but it is a graphic novel series by Royden Lepp. And it's set in this alternate world where a war inspired people to invent robots to go fight for them. But kind of like, um, like imagine robots built out of tractors more than like super sleek, futuristic sci-fi uh, robots. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and, it's it's a it's a very dust bowl yes world. And, and it's actually set after the war at a small farm where these robots are disrupting the quiet lives of two families who were already scarred by the war so rust consisted of four graphic novels the first was visitor in the field that was published in 2011 then secrets of the cell in 2012 death of the rocket boy in 2014 and soul in the machine in 2018 and uh it was a big gap waiting for that last volume yes it was well i mean i wasn't waiting with, for it with but a, it, but a rough cliffhanger one. yeah um and the uh these i will say even though they're long graphic novels each they are fast reads because a lot of the story is conveyed visually not textually now in comics there's the, the balance of both of those and there are definitely more text heavy comics that take longer to read just because you got to process the words and this one relies a lot more on panel art and sequential um uh juxtapositions in order to tell the story and to create the mood i mean mean, it's both uh you know creating the feeling of the story and the and the sense of this world but also a lot of the action and the character revelations happen uh strictly visually not textually now there is text that uh does do a lot of the work here and there but you'll get several pages in a row sometimes where it's like, Oh, no, that's all visual. Yeah. There, I mean, there's long stretches where it seems like it's, um, you know, like maybe 20 pages mm-hmm. of just visual action. 
Yeah, and uh, uh, the creator of the series, Royden Lepp, who wrote and drew uh, the, the the series, he uh, this is a quote from an interview on sci-fi.com where he said, there's a joke among the editors at, at Boom, and I think Archaea might be an imprint of Boom, but there's a joke among the editors that it takes me 10 pages to have a character tie his shoe, which is not entirely accurate, but is accurate. I think there's really strong power. No, that's him saying that. <laughs> that was not me adding commentary. Yeah. That was from the actual quote there. And he goes on and says, I, I think there's really strong strong power in that thing I call visual literacy, which is your ability to read someone's body language or facial expressions and put that with a composition that has boundaries and borders, lighting and value that tells you what's going on. There's so much more that's being told in that image than if you put some narration that the mood was tense. Show me the mood was tense. Um, I, I think there's a so bit of awareness there. <laughs> First of all, yeah. about like, it's not accurate, but kind of is uh, as far as some of the action sequences go. Yeah, and then the way he describes the art is kind of exactly how I would talk about his art mm-hmm. um, when he talks about, you know, like facial expressions and small movements in a body. Like, yeah, that is one of the things that I think is kind of unique about this work and and is really striking when you read it is you'll see these small character moments and you see somebody going through their emotional journey without any description of what that emotional journey is, but you see the way they look down and to the side and then shift their eyes and that shifts their shoulders. Yeah. And you can see that they've just processed something. Yeah. There's uh, I will say like some of the bigger action sequences of the robots fighting, I did get a little lost as to what was supposed to be conveyed as far as like how, uh, one character was interacting with the larger robots, but then when we got to the smaller moments, it was so perfect. Um, like there's one sequence, and I'm not like revealing a great thing of a young boy holding a shotgun and sitting on stairs as he looks down at the shells, and like there's so much palpable tension that's being built there. Um, as he's like preparing for uh trouble to be coming, and the way the both the design and shape of the boxes, which is not your traditional you know of the panels because it's not a traditional box um and then the way uh he switches like our point of view from behind him to in front of him close on his eyes to his point of view looking down like there's so much work that's being done there that was super successful like that that sequence is going to stick with me um you know well after i've read this i'm gonna like think about that panel layout and just like oh man he really nailed that that was that was a plus um uh graphic novel work being done by a skilled storyteller yeah. Um, one thing that would make this more well-known to large audiences is an adaptation. And there was a film adaptation in production at Fox. So I don't know what. Oh, it got the Fox curse. Yes. We're, we're, we're still in limbo on so many of the projects that Fox had in the pipeline since Disney bought Fox. A number like the one that hurts the most is Mouse Guard being canceled, which it looked like a beautiful adaptation of Mouse Guard was in the works. but got And, and was like. A day from production. Yeah, a day from filming. Uh, beginning filming. Like, all the pre-production was was there. Uh, and when the sale went through, that was one of the first uh, that got the axe. Um, and this one was... I mean, it was. I, I guess I shouldn't say it was in production. It was announced, and there was a director ta- attached, and there were some quotes about the, the some of the pre-production work. Because so it wasn't, like, filming when I say it was in production. It was in pre-production still. But I, I have no idea mm-hmm. what has come of it since the, the Disney purchase. Yeah, I kind of hope that some of those ideas are going to get revived into, at the very least, into Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, it's, you know, I hope like that they may have have room for that. Yeah, there there would be room there, but uh, we'll we'll just see how things shake out. Well, before we move on to the full summary, we want to thank each and every one of you for downloading this episode and listening. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would also like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and give monthly updates on our fantasy box office. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Andrew, you have the long summary of Rust. Yes, before I get into that, though, um, you talked about how you came to it because I, I introduced it to you, but I didn't get to oh, um, talk I, I about my background. That. Well, please, please share. Yeah. Um, so the first time I saw anything with it was in um, w- w- it was thanks to free comic book day. Um, so every every May, first Saturday in May, there's free comic book day. The publishers put out um, different things, some some stories that are original and, and built for free comic book day, some stuff that's kind of a sampler. And I saw this in a sampler uh, and I guess it would have been the Archaea sampler. Their free comic book day sampler was hardcover. And had samples of like six or eight different um, different things from the publisher, including Mouse Guard and Rust, which is it was a really nice sampler. <laughs> yeah, I remember that sampler. Um, I, still, I have it on a shelf somewhere here. I I, I know which one. Yeah, you're talking and so about. that should have in it um, a Rust sample, I think. Oh, I found um, it. Hold on. Let me and so that, it is it within arm's reach because it was by my which by my which the sample I remember is contained in one of the volumes. Oh, it also had Return of the Dapper Men, which we've covered uh, in the oh. in, in, the, in the sampler. Yeah. So um, so I, I saw it and, and was kind of struck by the artwork and everything, and that got me to buy the first volume. And then I was kind of hooked on it all. And I think during the wait between volumes three and four, I just, every time I was at the comic book shop, I just kept checking in case it was there because – it wasn't the, the type of book that I would typically see in the regular previews because it's not issue by issue, not the big publishers. Um, and at some point I had, you know, reread things a couple of times. And I said, you know, I just really like this. I, and I want to, you know, see if there's a way to send a, a little fan letter. And I've not sent a lot of fan letters in my life, um, but I found Royden Lepp's blog and he had an email address. And so I just sent an email and just said, Hey, I want you to know, I really like Russ. I think it's really great. Um, and, you know, it was really short. And he actually responded to it. And and we had a small exchange back and forth with it, which was a really impactful um, interaction uh, at the time to, to me connecting with a creator and to say, you know, I like what you're doing. And to have him respond back and say, I appreciate you, you know, saying that. Uh-huh. And so that's one of the reasons that the series has just, you know, stuck with me even more um, over time, right? Because you have that positive interaction. Yeah, it, it uh, gives you a, just a little more of a personal uh, investment, I think. Yeah. So tell the listeners, if there's something that you like and there's creators working on it, I mean, if you have a chance, let them know that you like it. <laughs> yeah, I remember... Um... John Hodgman, who has a popular podcast that I very much enjoy, Judge John Hodgman, but one time he told a story about uh, through a series of events, he was at a table with Stephen Moffat, who was the showrunner for Doctor Who, and he said, I, I, out of fear that it was uh, not my place, I did not tell him what a huge fan of Doctor Who I was and of his work, 
And and then later on, he heard someone else saying basically that. And Stephen Moffat was so excited to hear it. And they just talked about Doctor Who. And he's like, that I missed. I missed my moment. I, I should not have been scared to tell uh, a creator that I loved his work. Because that's what creators want to hear. <laughs> they, they love to know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so just, like that stuck with me. I can't remember, you know, the words in any of the emails. But I remember that he responded back to like, it was just like an email. I was like, I'm sure he gets stuff and, and like, I don't respond to emails from strangers, <laughs> but he took that time. And, and so that stuck with me, um, with this series. And I was like, I, I like the series. Now I like the creator too. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry. We cut off your story. Uh, uh cause that, I think that's one that definitely need to be told. Cause that personal connection, I, I think changes like even my understanding of why you you had recommended this one, uh, and, like uh, and and knowing also that the creator was nice, that always helps you to enjoy work. You hate it when you find out a creator's a jerk, and so knowing that the creator yeah. uh, was was nice to you, like that just you know uh, ups my appreciation of it just a little bit more. You know, just a little extra, a little extra spice in there. Yeah, and also the fact that like. I got into this because of a sampler at free comic book day. Like go out and see samplers guys, Ex- expose yourselves to things that you don't know that you're going to like. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. And uh, one thing that I love about doing this podcast is we have people recommend those kinds of things. Where it's like, I don't know if I'd ever get to that otherwise, but I'm going to go watch an episode of a thing or, uh, you know, uh, read something that I wouldn't otherwise. And sometimes we found a lot of really good, great artists um, and, and great stories uh, because of that. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll start doing my summary. This is one of those things that really reminds you that when they say a picture is worth a thousand words, they're not kidding. Like this is, as Joseph said, text light and picture heavy. That did not make it a lot easier to summarize because I have to just transfer all of this information that's presented in images <laughs> into <laughs> our audio medium, which is tough. Well, I appreciate you uh, doing so the heavy I will do my on that best. one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in every volume, they start with a flashback to the war 48 years ago, and then they'll cut to present day for the majority of it. So in volume one, Visitor in the Field, 48 years ago, a battle takes place between what looks like roughly World War One era soldiers and mixed in with the soldiers are also robots. One side features um, human sized robots and the other side includes robots that are about 20 feet tall. Uh, as the battle continues, a soldier crawls between bodies looking specifically for robots. He seems disappointed whenever he sees a human. And when he finds one, he opens up its chest and pulls out its fuel oil cell. And then he puts that cell inside a duffel bag full of similar cells. At one point, he removes a cell from one of the bodies and he discovers that it is unlike any of the other cells collected. Meanwhile, a squad of young soldiers wearing jetpacks arrives at the battle and they turn the tide against the large robots and their forces. In the present day, we are at the Taylor Farm, and Roman narrates a letter to his dead father as a journaling technique, and it, and he's also trying to repair one of these human-sized robots that we saw in the war scene. He describes how the farm is doing, and then he tells the story of how he met his temporary farmhand, Jet Jones. A week ago, uh, Roman had been out in the field on his tractor, and Jet crashed through the top corner of the barn. He was wearing a jetpack and dressed exactly like the young soldiers in the prologue. And by young, we're talking like 13, 14 if, years if old. If that, maybe even younger. Roman, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd say older than 10, 15 would be a hard cap. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, 
So Rowan ran up to check on him, expecting him to be dead. And as Jet came to, surprisingly, um, behind the barn, one of those 20-foot robots from the war uh, came around, picked Jet up, and threw him across the field into a tree. Uh, Roman got on his motorcycle and rode over to Jet. And Roman admits that he was somewhat interested in helping Jet, but he was kind of more interested in the really powerful giant robot in the field and the prospect <laughs> that that could have if he could harness that power. Um, he wants to turn it into a tool on the farm. You know, better than a tractor is a giant robot. <laughs> Not like power, like I will conquer the world. Like I need to harvest and I don't have any farm hands because everyone died in the war. <laughs> yeah. Like it's hard out here and robots help. Yes. Um, so he picks him up, he picks Jet up on the motorcycle. Jet sets up a plan to lure the robot over to the barn so Roman can climb on top of it and cut the oil line to, to get the, ro- the, the engine in the robot to seize up. All these robots have, you know, massive tractor engine kind of looking parts. I mean, it's, it really is tractory, <laughs> all of the technology that we have in, in this story. Um, so Jet gets beat up pretty bad. Um, in order to lure the robot over to the barn, but Roman gets on top of it and cuts the oil line and um, and it seizes everything up. Jet agrees to stay on the farm to repair the damage done during the battle. So Roman finishes up this letter to his father and his his younger brother, Oz, who looks like he's about 10 years old, um, arrives and asks a bunch of questions about Jet and about the war. And this is where we get some exposition from Roman about how robots were developed on both sides in order to fight the war. But now that it's over, most of the robots are recoded to perform manual labor like farm work. Oz heads towards the house for dinner. Jed arrives at the workshop and says he's finished repairing the tractor. And then he sees the robot that is being repaired. And he gets pretty upset saying that all the robots in the war were built uh, fundamentally for killing no matter what recoding says. Uh, and he also claims to have been in the war, which doesn't track with the 48 years. Yeah, and it is um, obvious we, age, which is yeah. not a, uh, uh, you know, 60-year-old. Not 48. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Roman goes back to the house for dinner, and Jet starts to have a, a coughing fit. And he goes to the large robot in the field, pulls out one of its fuel cells, and uses it to replace an empty fuel cell in his own chest. Jet Jones is a robot. Dun, dun, dun! Inside the house. Yeah. And this is this isn't even a cliffhanger at the end of the the volume inside the house. Roman argues with his mother about work on the farm, and he also answers some questions from Oz, his younger sister, Amy, and their blind neighbor girl named Ava, who's the same age as Amy, probably about five or six. Tensions are pretty high in the house here. Um, Jet returns to the house covered in oil and sits down for dinner. Oz starts to ask if Jet was part of the war, but this this line of questioning is shut down. After dinner, Roman takes Ava home to her farm nearby, and while there, he talks to her grandfather, who reveals through flashback that he was the soldier at the beginning of the volume collecting fuel cells. He tells Roman that things will be better if Jet leaves soon, but doesn't answer a lot of questions about what he knows. Uh, Roman also sees Jesse, who's a woman his age and Ava's older sister, and she's um, driving into the city to look at schools so she can move away from the farm after Grandpa dies, since she wouldn't be able to take care of the farm on her own. While driving, she crashes into another of those um, human-sized robots, and it was walking straight to the Taylor farm. It attacks her, but she is able to uh, disable it. And when she crashes into it, this wrecks the truck. These are hardy robots. Yes. Yeah. And that's the end of the volume. So volume two, Secrets of the Cell. 
In the flashback 48 years ago, Jet escapes from a government bunker, cuts out his original fuel cell, and then replaces it with a standard one. He hides the original fuel cell in um, the robot that's then found by the soldier that we saw in volume one, right? The the flashbacks are kind of in reverse order mm-hmm. uh, in, in the volume. We've gone a little and bit then he flies here. Yeah. And then he flies away and a government scientist watches him closely. In the present day on the farm, Roman is impressed at how easy it will be to repair the new robot um, that attacked Jesse. She is less enthusiastic about all of this, and she's also frightened by the other robot that Roman finished repairing and coding. Oz sees Jet change his his fuel cell and realizes that he's a robot. He tries to tell Roman about this, but then hesitates and leaves on his bike. Roman and Jesse reminisce about times together growing up. And as work continues on the farm, Roman narrates another letter. Uh, Jet helps Mrs. Taylor in the house and asks about Mr. Taylor. She says he was a good man. And she asks Jet about his father. Jet says his father was a liar. Oz goes to Jesse's grandpa and asks about Jet being a robot. He asks about the war. Um, Jesse's grandpa explains about robots in the war and talks about power cells. Back on the farm, a stranger who looks like the scientist, which would be probably the person that Jet calls his father, asks Roman if a young boy has come through and Roman lies and says no. Jesse's grandpa tells Oz how the power cells work and that he found one that was different from all the others. He currently uses it to power his workshop and the house. This is a really special power cell. There's just like tons of plugs, just lines and lines of plugs jacked into it. Um, and we've that evening, the Oz other, returns we've home. The other power to, cells like run out fairly quickly. And yeah, this one's just, yeah. Jet's oh. going through these in a couple days. Yeah. Um, so Oz returns to the house and finds, uh, and he goes to find jet. Uh, Roman turns on the new robot, um, which immediately hits him. Uh, and heads towards Jet in in the barn. Jet tries to protect Oz from this robot and flies away. The robot also has a jetpack and it pursues. Um, they fight. Jet drops off Oz inside a moving train car, which doesn't seem like a great secure location. Yeah. Um, he also tries to get a fuel cell from Oz, but Oz does not want to give it to Jet. He has developed some some fear and hatred towards robots, um, and he thinks Jet is dangerous. Jet defeats the robot and flies away, coughing. Roman and Jesse drive after Jet and Oz, but lose track of them. Oz is still sitting in the train car at the end of the volume. So it's kind of a rough cliffhanger there. Volume three, Death of the Rocket Boy. So in the flashback 48 years ago, we see um, Jet lose control while trying to save someone. He creates a massive blast of electricity is what it looks like. Um, There are several casualties. And in a military bunker, he's told that his powers are not fully understood but he has been given choice in his programming, which is unlike any of the previous robots. His cell is also unique and records his choices and experiences. He chooses to rebel against his father and escapes the base. And then it would feed into the the previous flashback. In the present day, the robot that Jet defeated wakes up and resumes pursuit. Jet is able to destroy it by forcing it to crash into the train and explode. Um, this does derail the whole train and is super dangerous. Oz falls out. Jet is able to catch him. And then he re- he uh, replaces his cell. Oz tries to stop him from doing this, but Jet punches him so that he can replace the cell. Uh, and, then, and then he flies Oz back to Roman and Jesse. Roman's angry that Jet has destroyed the robot that could have helped him on the farm. Uh, Jet defends his position, saying it was trying to kill him. Uh, and Roman drives away, <laughs> leaving Jet behind. This seems like... Roman's a little out of line. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, The story allows a lot of the characters to have both the right decisions and the wrong decisions, depending on the moment. Yeah, there is, like, and not ambiguity. It's just like, oh, these people are struggling and decisions are hard. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. So in the car, Oz tries to tell Roman that Jet is a robot. Roman doesn't want to listen to him. Um, And this is a moment where you're like, okay, maybe Roman's not, like, totally being the worst here. You know, you yes. have these moments kind of back to back um, at the crash site. Some government agents retrieve one of Jet's used cells and report that they have found him. They're given orders to destroy Jet and his original cell by any means necessary and without regard for any collateral damage. Jet goes back yeah, to making the government look really good. here. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is not ambiguous <laughs> there. Uh, Jet goes back to the farm, uses the last available cell. And his father arrives and tells him that he's putting the farm in danger. Jet ignores him. He then warns Roman again about the robots and goes to repair the barn. During dinner, Roman entertains everyone with ideas about how funny or what funny things he can program the robot to do in the future. After dinner, Roman sort of awkwardly semi proposes to Jesse. Um, She declines. This is better in the book, right? This is one of those things like I can't convey this very effectively. (laughs) Um, There's some... uh... Heart-wrenching dialogue in this. We'll get back to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is It is a tough scene. Um, Amy and yeah. Ava, the little girls, take food out to Jet and ask if he will be leaving soon. He says he probably is, but he wishes he could stay. And this is also much better in the book. Like, these are kind of the emotional hearts of the, of the entire text, it feels like, in these moments. Mm-hmm. Um, the next day, Roman teaches Oz to fire a rifle. Oz is very good at it. Um, Jet's father reaches Jesse's farm and notices uh, Jet's original cell there. He recognizes it. The government agents prepare to send out a signal to recode robots in the surrounding area um, in order for them to converge on Jet's location. There's there's a cell, uh, a signal emitted by the fuel cells that Jet uses, and that's what they're going to lock on to, um, a, a signal from a cell on the farm. So that'll reprogram robots in several miles around and they will converge on his location and destroy him. Uh, and some of the some of the government agents are like pretty nervous about this. Like maybe we should relocate because this sounds like it's going to be bad. Um, but they just yeah, <laughs> are, they're going to do it and they're not going to warn anybody about it. On the farm, but they they themselves will get out of the way. Right. Yeah. It's like we will, Classy move we will by the avoid the scrapyard nearby. <laughs> Um, which <laughs> yeah. is kind of a warning sign. coming out of there. Yeah. Yeah. We, the, it kind of becomes a zombie movie a little bit with the yeah. robots at this point. I hadn't thought about right. that, but yeah, yeah, that's kind of a perfect description of it. They have, you know, a, a target in this case, a fuel cell instead of a brain, but yeah. Um, back on the farm, the working robot is programmed to collect eggs from the chickens, but something goes wrong. And instead it grabs a chicken and tears it in half. This is pretty unnerving for Roman. Um, Jesse's grandpa tells him that he ran over one of the robots once because it started to act strangely around Jesse. Nothing dangerous, but he's just like, this is weird. And it was following her around and stuff. So he just ran it over one day. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, take care of that. Yeah. And this, <laughs> once you know the, what the robots can do, which, uh, the, the, he was in the war, so he knows what the robots can do. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, there's a point and I didn't quote it exactly, but, um, when he's talking about the robots, and how they were created for the war. And he talks about the fact that they were not provided with guns because they don't need guns. And so, you know, barehanded killing. 
um, out of the robots. Yes. This further unnerves Roman. <laughs> Jet starts coughing again and runs to the barn to try and find oil to drink. Um, everyone else goes to dinner. In the barn, Jet's father appears and says that he found the original cell. If Jet removes his oil cell, he'll replace it with the original and help Jet fulfill his purpose. Meanwhile, dozens of robots start to converge on the barn, responding to their recoding. They're sensing the, the cell in Jet's chest. Volume four, the soul in the machine. So back in the, the, the prologue 48 years ago, Jet is on a mission and he chooses to try to save a soldier rather than attack a robot carrying a bomb. Because of this choice, the bomb kills many soldiers and enraged by that, Jet unleashes an electrical attack that destroys many enemy robots. The soldier he was trying to save does not survive. In the present day, uh, Jet's father begins to replace the oil cell with Jet's original cell. Jet did remove his his oil cell and all the robots froze because the cell was deactivated. And so his father's putting in the original cell inside the house. Um, Oz activates an oil cell and prepares the rifle, um, which is going to draw all of the robots to him. He doesn't know that there's a ton of robots around. I'm not 100% sure what his thought process is here. Um, but it shifts the the danger to the house from the barn. And this is now pretty much the middle of the night. Everyone's asleep and he sets up on the stairs uh, ready to shoot at robots when they come to the house. Um, however, the rifle does this not. Is that sequence I was talking about of uh, a kid sitting there with a gun on the stairs looking at the shells. Yeah. Uh, and, and the oil coming out it, of the it, it works for building the tension. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it draws all the, the robots to him and they attack the house. The rifle is not very effective. And no. dozens of robots. It turns out these war machines yeah, are not stopped by <laughs> a simple farm too. rifle. Um, yeah. And so the robots begin to attack the house and the family. Um, Jet arrives and is able to, to fight um, more effectively than we've ever seen him fight. He's always been tough and strong, but it seems even more so now. He's taking on several robots at a time. And his eyes are glowing now that he has his original cell in place. But there's a lot of them, and so Jesse and her grandpa are there, and they begin fighting the robots as well. Roman's recoded farm robot nearly chokes him um, before Jesse can help him, uh, and Jet destroys several of the robots. So they, they get things cleared up. After the battle, they all go outside, and they can see that Jet's arm is damaged, revealing to all of them that he is, in fact, a robot. And he claims not to be like the other robots, but they don't trust him. Jesse's grandpa tells a false version of the story we've seen unfold in the prologue. Um, and Jet argues that it's not true, but also it is not all entirely false. Um, Jet's father arrives and tells them that he created Jet as a reminder of the hope found in children and family and in the future. He chose to do this after his own young son was killed in an attack during the war, and he and Jet leave the farm. As they leave, they do see that another massive robot, this is like the biggest robot we've seen, uh, is headed to the farm. The oil cell in the house is still sending out its signal, um, drawing robots there. And Jet tries to return to the farm, but the government agents arrive and capture him. Jet struggles against his chains as he sees the robot headed towards the farm, and his father is threatened by an agent simultaneously. So he's kind of, you know, he's trapped without choice, as he would like to do two things simultaneously. It's, it's, a, it's a nice moment. Um, Jet's father is shot and enraged. Jet unleashes another of those electricity blasts and that frees him from his chains and it incapacitates the agents. The giant robot um, gets close to the farmhouse and this one is, again, huge and also has a massive gr grenade launcher. Um, so this is like the biggest war <laughs> robot we've seen. Um, 
Oz realizes that it's because the cell inside the house is still sending out that signal. And he rushes inside to try and retrieve that cell and turn it off. But as soon as he gets inside, the robot fires a grenade and destroys half of the home. As it prepares to fire a second attack, Jet arrives and begins to fight it. He's able to to knock its arm out of the way before the blast. Uh, Roman and Jesse rush into the house to try to find Oz. As Jet fights the robot, Jesse's grandpa leads everyone else into the barn. So that's um, Jesse's grandpa, uh, Mrs. Taylor, and then Ava and Amy, the little girls. And so he's trying to get everyone into the barn. Jet gets knocked down, and as they're all getting into the barn, Amy falls down. The robot sees her and discovers the family, and it, it it's focusing its, its you know spotlight on her. And while this is happening, Roman and Jesse are able to rescue Oz um, from inside the house. Amy gets up after falling and yells at the robot to leave Jet alone. The robot aims the grenade launcher at her. A jet flies to her just as the grenade fires, and as the explosion clears, we can see that Jet has been able to create a force field around himself and Amy to protect them from the blast. So that same electrical energy he's he's used for, you know, destructive blasts, he created a force field and protected them with. Jet tells Amy to go to the barn, and he fights the robot again, is able to rip one of its arms off. But the robot steps on him and breaks him apart, like in pieces. Um, then it starts to attack the barn. Oz sees Jet's broken body and his original cell. As the robot finds the family in the barn, that large robot that we that we saw in the first volume, right, that attacked the farm and Jet originally, it comes to life behind the, the new big one. And it has Jet's cell glowing in its chest. And this allows Jet's cell to control the robot, and it destroys the attacking robot and protects everyone. In an epilogue, both families leave their farms and head into the city. Roman is nervous about the unknown, but says that he has recently been reminded of what family and hope really look like. Oz opens a bag in the back of the truck, and he looks in to see Jet's cell. And then Jet's cell looks back at him. The end. Ah, oh, I like how you said Jet Cell looks back at him because that's exactly like, what it's doing. And it's, I, like, I was uh, looking at him like, I can't <laughs> phrase this any other way because we get a perspective from the Cell's view. Yes, you see, we see Oz open up the bag and then we see like the panel is looking up at Oz with the zippers, uh, you know, getting zipped closer until the last shot is the zipper closing and it goes black at the end of that yeah. and says end. But yeah, so it's got to be the Cell looking up at Oz. So there's still you know, the sentience is in there. Yeah. Something about jet is preserved. Yes. Which you want it to be at the end of this story. <laughs> yeah. So this, the story overall of super well done. Uh, and the, the, um, the moments there, there's several of those moments that kind of are going to stick with me. Like I mentioned that sequence with the, the gun, but also that conversation you were mentioning of Roman kind of awkwardly pitching, to Jesse, what if we get married? Where the, yeah, like, the way he says it, because she's talking about like, I've got to go to the city for my sister who's blind. Like there's going to be better resources that can help us. And also I can't and, take and care of her. the farm. Um, and he's like, we could take care of the farms together. And she says something that is simultaneously like really, I think mature and thoughtful of her, but also hurt to read where I think, if I remember right, like she kind of reaches out and touches his hand and she says, I don't want to marry the only man I've ever known. Yes. <laughs> like you get the sense. We, we don't know what the war did to the population, but you get the sense it decimated. Like the, the human population is a fraction of what it once was. Yeah, like I, I call particularly in these rural areas. 
like this was like this literally may be some of the only human contact they've had yeah is so these two farms that are near each other neither of the families have fathers because they died in the war um yeah and i called them neighbors and they do seem to be closest neighbors but you've got to like get on your motorcycle and ride to the neighboring house yes <laughs> like this might be 10 or 15 minutes by by car and so that statement of like i don't want to marry the only man i've ever no, that's not like saying I don't like you. It's clear they have a bond that yeah, is and a friendship and a connection. Really yeah, but they they also like she's acknowledging like we've lived a remarkably sheltered life. <laughs> like, uh, we 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 don't know what else is out there, and making this choice right now would lock my life in. And it, it, it doesn't feel like a fear of missing out or even that she really is like thirsting for what's over the horizon. It's just acknowledging I've never seen what's over the horizon. Yeah. Like my my vision is not in line with this. And also, like, I want a little bit of experience. Yeah. And it, I, I think one reason why the that like that line of dialogue of I don't want to marry the only man I've ever met works so well is because there's so much truth and hurt in it at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and it's also striking because she kind of addresses it so bluntly and plainly and simply as Roman has kind of worked around the question. Mm -hmm. And, and she kind of bluntly says, like, I know what you're asking. And that's, that's not what's going to happen right now. Now, if they are reverse of Volume Five, they better be together. <laughs> That's all I gotta say. Well, and in the epilogue, they are like she does um, reach out to hold his hand. Like it seems like maybe the experience they've gone through is the indication of you're not going to get a stronger connection than this. Yeah. Um, one thing that I think is really interesting is like within the specificity of those moments we've acknowledged, there is still something that's kind of ethereal about the story. Like I could not tell you where this is set. No, or what year, because the war, is, the war is 48 years ago. And it seems to be uh-huh. essentially world war one era, like the uniforms and the, the style of combat and all that stuff. The grenades is like, this looks pretty world war one, maybe into world war two, but 48 years ago, it doesn't seem like they have, gotten into the nineties or yeah. even the 70s. And uh, yes. So, so the time and like the geography and like the race of these characters, it's all a little ethereal. Like, like I can't, I couldn't nail it down. And I, it, it felt a little like I was entering um, a bit of a, like a post-apocalyptic fairy tale. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like it's, it's neither here nor there. And the, these, the, it's gotta be deliberate to avoid some of the specificity of naming a country or, um, really having uh, like definitively defined racial features that make you say, okay, the, the, all these characters are, are from this one region of the world or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and, and some of this is aided, I think by, and we, we haven't even addressed this, um, the artistic choice to have it be monochromatically sepia toned. Mm-hmm. Right. There's, there is no color in this. It is all browns and tans. Yeah. Um, and like when they talk about the field, it's a wheat field. So everything's wheat colored, <laughs> you know, and and so it's, I, I, you know, you you 
are stepping into this, you're like, oh, okay, this is sort of like stepping into, um, oh, brother, where art thou? Right? Everything's just tan fields, Mm -hmm. as far as you can see. Oh, that's another text we need to cover (laughs) on the podcast. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, uh, I I think it works. Um, Like, I I really enjoyed that um, lack of specificity on it. So when I was looking up the trivia, I saw that... um, he is uh, the the author Royden Lepp is from rural Canada. Hey, this is another of our Canadian texts. We always yeah, you know, like the plains, like in um, like in Corner Gas. Yes, uh huh. And and so some of this is rooted in his own experience, but he also in that one interview he said very specifically, I didn't want to make this about me working through my own issues. Um, I oh, I don't want to put this into his own like personal biography, but I think there was a reference to him having lost his dad when he was younger and um. Uh, but, but he said, I, I, I didn't want this text to become like specific to my experience, which sometimes you, you see art and it becomes the artist working through something so personal that it only is for them. Right. <laughs> like it becomes just, just their text that happens to be being seen by more and um, making it kind of hard to pin down time and place, uh, uh, you know, remove some of that personal specificity. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Should we dig into the characters? Yeah, because there's a lot of interesting characters here. Yeah. So at the beginning, uh, right before we started the episode, you know, we were writing out what Joseph was going to say at the intro and say what characters we're talking about. And we like, couldn't. And I had written down, we're going to talk about Jet, Roman, Jesse. But then we're like, you're like, oh, but I want to talk about Oz. I'm like, oh, what were the two girls names? The, the, yeah, the like, friends. Because they were great. And oh, it's like at this point, we should just say the characters. Yeah, from there's not. Because they all. It's not a large uh, cast. Are intriguing. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well, and, and uh, within that, it's not like everyone has their moments to shine. So like Roman's mom, I don't know that we have a whole lot to say about her. Yeah, but she's she's there and she's part of it. But yeah, she maybe has the yeah. smallest part. So let's maybe start with uh, Jet, because he kind of stands out as, you know, the the robot boy who would be human, mm-hmm. uh, who's looking for a family. Uh, yeah, so definitely he, like some Pinocchio aspects there. Yeah, some uh, Iron but, Giant kind but, of elements. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. With the, you know, I, I, I don't want to be a weapon. I, I want to protect, you know, what is my nature um, kind of stuff. Yeah. But he also has like a pretty hard edge about you know, like the war was bad and robots are for killing and they're like, like there's nothing redeemable to him about a robot. Even him. Right. And yes, I was gonna say there's some self-loathing in that, um, where he wants to be human. Uh, he, he, he wants to be human and he kind of hates what he is. Now there is, a definite distinction between most of the robots we see and jet. Like most of the robots are literally, as you said, unthinking killing machines is what they were created for. And even as people try to code them to be other things, the killing side keeps popping back up in inopportune moments. Not that there's really going to be a lot of opportune moments for the killing side of these robots to pop up, but like there's this, the constant dread there's of a, anyone yeah. who's worked with the robots. Like these, these could go bad at any second guys. Yeah. And there's a tension. There's not much we can do about it when they do. Yeah. There's a tension about it. And this, and they talk about like, well, we can recode them, but they have a base code. Mm-hmm. And which is kill. Yeah. And so if the recoding, doesn't work or if it deteriorates and and again this is kind of like in that 
what technology are we dealing with? Like recoding them seem to involve hooking up a Morse code machine. Yeah, like like the paper punch card. Like if you have like some movie hidden figures out. and they were talking about the computers. Yeah, like it was it was it was it was the old punch card programmer uh, kind of computer technology. Yeah. So when we say like there's a self loathing for uh, that Jet has for robots, there there is also that difference between what most robots are and what he is. But he knows at his you know he he was created as a weapon. Like he, he knows that is part of his core. Uh, even as there's still a, a huge difference between him and every other robot that we see in the story. Yeah. And um, some of this, you know, goes into the prologue when he's arguing with his father um, after the, the incident, you know, he is upset because he made a wrong choice and people died. And his father's trying to explain to him why he was given the power of choice. He's like, but isn't like, wouldn't it be better if I just did what was right every time? And I think that's kind of a theme throughout this entire story is like none of the characters do what is right every time. Well, and and we're also shown times where it's like it's impossible to know what is right right now. (laughs) Like what is the right choice? I wish I had like I, I they want to make the right choice. They will not know until they have hindsight to see how things turn out. If what the choice they made was the, the the right choice in that moment. Yeah. So wanting to make the right choice is not a guarantee that you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And, and Jet's really upset by the fact that he has choice, right? He's not just programmable. He's not just code. Mm-hmm. And, and um, they kind of establish and, that is like, that's the point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, I like, um, like we we get hints of what his how many years was the war ago how long uh, 48. Was it? 40, 48 years like we get hints of what his 48 years have been that he's just constantly been on the move and just really like hunting hunting down oil cans so he can keep moving on um and he settles into this farm and when you think about it as literally being you know it, I, I mean at least four decades of move 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 and then he settles in to this space in a way that he never has before. Um, like the, the yearning for a potential belonging is so strong that he can't, he can't turn away anymore, even though that has been his MO this entire time. And it's kept him safe and it's kept the military hunting for so long that I, I mean, you think about like the, the people who are hunting him, like we're, we're like second generational jet hunters at this point. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like they have the general, who looks like he's 85 years old. Oh yeah. He's, he's very aged. And, and he says he's <laughs> not going to retire till this is finished up. Yeah. And then you've got the, all the younger uh, ones are the ones that are like having to carry out the orders that are given that, of, you know, the basically no mercy. Uh, we, yeah. we must destroy this. Um, yeah. And I think jet feels, you know, guilt about his choice of wanting to stay at the farm, even though he knows he's putting them in danger. And so he's still fighting this, you know, impulse is like, I have choice. I have duty. I know the right thing is to protect them and leave, but I don't want to. Yeah. And then there's the guilt once he knows he made the wrong choice, right? <laughs> like he gave into his desire uh, and the consequences are, are going to be catastrophic uh, for the, for the family. Mm-hmm. And then he, you know, it, you know, just like, once you get in like the third volume, you know, this theme of choice and 
you know, not knowing what your choices will lead to. And that's kind of the point. Um, when you look at the whole thing again, it, it makes a big difference. Yeah, I think this is one that would reward a rereading. I've only read it the one time uh, in preparation for this, but it, I, it sounds like a text you've, you probably in prepping for the fourth one, I'm guessing went back and reread everything and yeah. reread everything for this episode now. Uh, so you get some of that, you know, the, the joy that comes in uh, uh, know, knowing where things get to uh, and revisiting the beginning and you, you pick up on some of the, the hints and the, uh, the themes that are being laid down early on. Yeah, and I, I and like it's worth noting this is not like a rollicking adventure. This is like these people are in conflict because of their choices. Like Jet and Roman argue because they have choices to make. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like always fun, good times, and then protecting the family. Like this is like hard stuff where there's like rejection of each other and each other's ideals and um, you know, personal baggage coming into play. Like it's good. Stuff. Yeah, but I think it does. It does still function as a like an all ages comic. Like I was thinking, like oh, I should give this to my eleven year old. Like she, yeah, I, I think she'd like this. Yeah, there's not a lot that's um, like impossible to. It's it's not impenetrable for a young mind. Mm-hmm. But oh, it, yeah, but yeah, it works so. in that all ages category that we've talked about before. Is you know a misleading category sometimes. Yeah. Where sometimes we just think it's for kids. So I think this is for everyone. Yeah. Um. What other characters do you want to make sure we touch on? Um. I think I think Roman is a big one. He he becomes the narrator. Right. The letters to his father are where um, a lot of the internal aspects of uh, what this world has done to these characters are revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, where we see just how scarred uh, like the individual identity has become and the, and the pressures uh, that are weighing on. Uh, well, personally on Roman, but you you. Can then you feel uh, that pressure on how 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 this is is yeah uh, hitting hitting all all the other members of the family, um, and the writing in those letters to his father I think is really well done. I agree, um, and and since you mentioned the like personal scarring um, that everyone has gone through, I think it's a a good time to mention something that you addressed that you wanted to bring up was, um, so Oz it doesn't come up in my in my um, summary at all, because it, it doesn't come up in the story. Oz has a prosthetic limb, right? His, his arm, mm-hmm. we don't know what happened, but he has a prosthetic limb and that's who he is. And um, Ava, the little girl is blind and we don't get background on that. It's like, these are just challenges that are part of their lives. Yeah, and uh, the the characters all just carry on like the as far as Oz, like there's no acknowledgement uh, for Ava. The scene when the robot rips the chicken, she's asking, "Did the robot?" Because they start laughing and saying the robot's trying to catch a chicken. Which, if you've mm-hmm. ever seen, and this robot looks like a person. If you've ever seen a person trying to catch a chicken, it always looks comical. And so she's like, "Did it catch it? Did it catch it?" And when the robot, robot rips it apart, they're like, uh, "Go into the kitchen." <laughs> and yeah, and uh, I think Roman her. says, "I'm, I'm glad that she can't see it." I'm glad she didn't see that. Yeah, I'm glad she didn't see the the chicken get ripped apart. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's uh, like one of the only acknowledgements in there uh, uh, that that's, that she's blind. And uh, I, I thought it was um, for what this, you know, the scale of the story where it is like these two family units only in this one situation. Uh, it was 
perfectly natural that no one would talk about those things because that would just be their world. Like if there was a new, uh, you, you know, uh, all these new people coming in and, and like asking questions, that's when you get those kinds of backstories and lost stories. But uh, yeah, Jet came in, but Jet's not really being inquisitive about the family. <laughs> um, the family's a little more curious about him than he is about the family. So we don't get any of those those questions happening. So this is just their world. So there's no reason for them to talk about it amongst themselves, right? They're, yeah. they're just, you know, carrying on. Like it, it, I mean, you don't even notice it until, I mean, I don't even know when you notice it because it's just not a significant part of the story. Yeah. And as far as like representation goes uh, for characters with disabilities, I think that that is a valid way to approach it and handle it, uh, you know, in, in this text. Yeah. And it doesn't prove to be like an impediment at any point um, for, for Oz, right? It doesn't get in the way of him performing any duties and he's expected to kind of do his tasks and he just does them. Well, and even like when he's like being taught to shoot the rifle, you expect maybe there'll be some discussion, but nope, he's just hooks his prosthetic limb into the, into the trigger. And yeah, he just and, uh, finds a way it. to make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So should we talk about Jesse? I think she's a really interesting character. Yeah, let's touch on her because uh, we we've talked here. about her interaction and her not wanting to marry the only man she knows. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, she seems just more put together most of the time, a little more confident than Roman. Yeah, I would agree with that. Some of that may be because we, we are given some explicit peeks into uh, the angst that Roman is feeling about his role uh, and, and you know, his, his stress about the family farm because of those letters to his father, whereas uh, we don't get that kind of internal monologue for Jesse. But what we do see is, I agree with you, um, There, there's, uh, well, I mean, I, I want to say confidence, but at the same time, she also has, like, the uncertainty of, like, I don't know how to raise my, my sister here. I, I don't know how to carry on the farm. So it's not, like, brazen confidence or, in any way. Um, but uh, I mean, what you said about being a little more put together, I, I think is accurate. Maybe optimism, I, I, but I don't know quite. I don't know quite how to how to how to you know put it into words what you see. But there's definitely a difference between Roman and Jesse. Yeah, I mean, every character has their own personality. It's it's really good character work. Um, and yeah, and a lot, I mean, so much of that is being revealed visually, sometimes translating those like visual impressions into words for this podcast can be a little hard. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've got to say, um, at first glance, the art is probably going to seem simple, but as you read it and you see like the finesse with which he does, um, facial expressions and body language, like this is not simple stuff. Oh no, he's uh, he's he's very good at his craft. Um, I did see it like he works full time uh, in the video game industry, and the the idea for this in some ways started as a video game pitch. And he he said, "I'm glad it never became a video game." <laughs> like, um, <laughs> but uh, he mentioned that he also took film classes in college in that one interview that I was looking at, and um, he'd get criticized for doing too much in the storyboards. And he said, <laughs> "The storyboard." wanted like like i was told like well, you just need to show they're on this side of the room and they get to that side of the room and i'm like i needed i felt the need to like show how they moved across the room and like how their body was being held and uh you know all these things that were going to re- reveal internal aspects of of the character 
uh, you know, cause, cause are you, are you striding across the room or are you, uh, you know, kind of, kind of holding yourself in as you, as you slowly move across the room, like that, that is important for telling the story. But when you're storyboarding for a movie, that's not what the purpose of the storyboard is, you know? Yeah. Uh, but he, he felt the need to kind of reveal uh, visually some some of those aspects, which in movies obviously are going to be revealed visually. It's again, just like for the storyboard, it's, it's a little more bare bones than all of that. And he, he found that comic book visual storytelling is, is where his, like he, his strengths uh, could, could align with the, um, the medium of storytelling more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, I mean, it just works wonderfully in these moments where you can see someone, you know, think about something and change their mind without saying anything, you know, uh, Oz is going to try to tell Roman about jet being a robot and then decides to go to his bike and ride over to Jesse's grandpa. Right. And, and you see all this happen. He, you know, says something and then you have like four panels of him thinking. And then he says, never mind, And he goes, you know, and it's like, yeah, I know it, exactly it, what, like, I know exactly what's going on here. Like, I see that hesitation and he's changing his mind. He's like, I, I'm not ready to talk to you about this. I don't think you're going to believe me. I'm going to go do my own thing. And you see like a little bit of sullenness and, but determination and all this stuff. Yeah. It's uh like the, the craft uh, in the storytelling is, is really stellar. Um, his uh, use of the comic medium to give us those moments of deep introspection through the letters to the father, like textually, but then to also uh, advance stories silently. Um, it, it's a wonderful blend and it's, it's relying on uh, the, the, the strengths of the comic book medium to uh, tell the story that is on the one hand, sci-fi robot invasion war movie on the other hand broken families in a rural farm setting <laughs> relying on each other to get through from day to day <laughs> right yeah um and like and i'm interested those... by both of them yeah uh-huh uh it, it uh it comes together in a really satisfying way and i think really well balanced because you you could very easily see a situation where they're not equally engaging and so you have you know, this desire is like, okay, stop talking about your, like your relationship and your feelings get back to like jetpack action. But, but you don't feel that you're like, oh, this conversation about marriage or this conversation about, you know, caring for each other or what family means, like, these are the more compelling parts, maybe. Yeah. Um, and it would be interesting to see this translated. Like, how do they find that balance? Like, do they become enamored with this strange, not steampunk, but not futuristic yeah, sci-fi? Like, like, I don't know how to apply what, that. Like, is it is is there rust punk? Is there tractor punk? Like, what is this? <laughs> diesel? Is it diesel punk? Is that a thing? It feels like um, that might be a term I've heard. Maybe. It, it might fit into that category. I mean, like, it's all gears and mechanisms, but it's like, it's car engine gears. It's not steam mm-hmm. engine gears. And I think that's really visually arresting. And I think that could like that kind of visual could help like a studio greenlight a movie and say, oh, we'll, let's, let's make that. Like, but then this is also a really tight family drama. <laughs> um, uh, and, and like the the last letter to the, the son writes to his dad in which we see him like burying the box of letters at this point as he's writing mm-hmm. this. Like it gets heavy into these themes of um 
looking to the past in such a way that it actually prevents you from moving to the future, which looking to the past, I think is really important, but you know, he's identifying that it can stop to be the foundation on which you're building and is become a trap that you're falling into. Um, like all his, uh, yearning to understand his father and, and, and like he's, he talks about like wanting to keep the farm cause it's, it's where he can think of his father, but is staying on the farm really what's best for him and his young siblings to be able to move forward. You know, that, yeah. that kind of, uh, tension, uh, which is, it's, it's a really powerful discussion that like kind of hits you in the epilogue. Like you said, like, like okay, the, the big robot fight's done. Ooh, wow. There's still some thematic, uh, you know, anvils that are going to become falling from the sky during this epilogue. Yeah. And, and there's that, like a lot of tension around the idea of family and symbolism, um, going on. I mean, like there's big stuff with, with, um, family and, you know, hope versus, or hope and the future versus, um, looking back and being held back by it. And that's kind of what you're talking about with the epilogue. Um, there's another, you know, big theme that, or, or themes that get put in conflict with each other, which is, um, Jet's father says that he built the, the rocket boys as young boys to be a reminder of hope and inspiration in the future, in posterity and things like that. You know, something that everyone lost as they were, you know, taken away from their families and homes to serve in the war and then slowly realized that they might never go back. You know, they might never see any of that future. And so he had that in mind. And just as grandpa talks about the rocket boys being created as boys to be um, misleading, right? You're not intimidated by a child. You underestimate a child, but they were the most powerful weapons in the war. And so you have these differing interpretations for why um why they were created the way they were yeah which uh yeah i mean another major theme that we get into is like the the differing traumas of war <laughs> like the and the the generational scarring uh mm-hmm. that has happened because of war and uh this and is the all different like, narratives. unique reaction yeah the different reactions and different narratives and different stories that are being told about the war so so like history like these these actual events that happened and impacted the people that we're, we're seeing is being remembered differently uh, with different impacts and how it's being passed down. And um, you know, d- different, different prejudices that are being created, different uh, interpretations of events that are being treated yeah. as fact. Uh, so I, I, I think there's a lot going on in this that um, a reread would help me to maybe be able to parse through a little, a little more fully or a little more consciously as, a, as I'm going through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, th- this first read, still super satisfying. <laughs> I just think it's yeah. a text that's de- deep enough. It would reward revisiting. Um, and, and yeah, with that, like the differing narratives is an interesting one because just grandpa talks about the story that he knows, which is Jet's story. And it was that, uh, you know, one of the robots lost control and there was massive explosion and casualties. Um, and then that robot escaped and he, and jet challenges. He says, that's not what happened. But part of it is what happened. Right. And so you have this narrative where it's like, okay, you don't have exactly what happened. And when you could look at it from, you know, the, the perspective we actually have in the prologues and you see that, you know, jet made a mistake and, and there was an accident and all this stuff, you have so much more empathy for the situation, but you can also totally understand the grandfather's perspective on it and why he would, you know, just, accept that story and say, you know, this is what happened. It's like, 
well, yeah, that's what happened. But like, but like, you know, it's not quite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but also like it immediately, like when you want to counter and say, well, that's not really what happened. I was like, well, did this happen? Yes. Well, did this happen? Yes. Well, did this happen? Yeah. But <laughs> like, it makes it hard to get to the butt where you want to point out, uh, you know, what, what's wrong in that interpretation. And that's what gets so messy about, about histories, particularly like just in this instance, it's like, it's like remembered histories, not documented histories. Right. And, and yeah. personal memory can be so, so tricky uh, and, and fallible. Um, and, and yet we don't want to think of our own memories or our own interpretations as, as flawed, uh, and, and inaccurate. Um, it, it is our truth. Uh, and, and, uh, to have those questions becomes like personal. <laughs> yeah. And, um, just it, and some of it comes down to exactly how the story is told, you know, the, the way the grandfather recounted it. It's like, okay. Like, I mean, technically everything you said is what happened but there's another way to tell it where you understand a little more of what's going on and some of the emotions and motivations and that changes how you look at the entire thing oh, rust is a good text that's like all four volumes great uh listeners you should you should find this and read it <laughs> and i believe there is um something else a volume zero i don't know anything about it except that i've seen that it exists and um so I don't know that that would be the most recent thing. Okay. And maybe we'll see a film adaptation. Who's, who's to say uh, right now after, after Disney bought Fox. Um, I, th- I think we're about at the point we need to wrap up. Andrew, do you have any final thoughts you want to share? I do not. I think I've covered everything that I wanted to say. Okay, well, that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 33, when we talked about Asterios Polyp, or episode number 204, when we talked about Return of the Dapper Men. You can reach us by emailing feedback at ProtagonistPodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at ProtagonistPod or at Jay producer andrew is at this minute and our facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast thank you again for listening we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story so long And, uh, I'm not, hmm, no, I don't probably don't want to do that tangent right now. <laughs> let, let me say that. Let, let's do trivia first. And then I'll, I'll say that for after you do the summary. All right. <laughs> I was about to go down a path that it was not, not the right spot in the podcast for it. Okay.